This program is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. To learn more about this podcast, visit pli.edu slash pro bono podcast. Looks more like a pediatrician's office. That's how Katie Anand, managing attorney at the nonprofit law firm Kids in Need of Defense, known as KIND, once described the hallway outside of immigration court in Fresno, California. Katie sees kids, ages 2 to 17, waiting to have their immigration case heard. And when a court official asks to meet with kids who do not have a lawyer, 90% of those waiting go with her. And I asked Katie, why do we have immigration courts full of young kids without any lawyer to assist them? One really key piece of information is that children are not appointed counsel in their immigration court proceedings. And as an unaccompanied child, there are some special protections and there are some provisions of federal law uh, that do provide protection for that child. And they're in this proceeding defending themselves um, alone. And this, this is often where the conversation starts. We need more lawyers for kids. It makes a huge difference when a kid in court has a lawyer. That seems obvious, and the data confirms it. According to Kine's analysis of government data, kids without lawyers were 70 times less likely to succeed in immigration court. 70 times less likely. But if I'm being honest, I always have questions. Questions I want answered first, before I can even focus on the getting more lawyers part. And I bet you have questions too. Mainly, I want to know... Why? Why are kids trying to cross the U.S. border alone? How is it even logistically possible that a three-year-old arrived in the country unaccompanied? How did we get to the point where the U.S. has an estimated 400,000 pending immigration cases just for unaccompanied children? Welcome to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute, in which lawyers and clients talk candidly about their pro bono experiences. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken, and for 15 years, I was a legal services attorney in Chicago. Now, I'm a principal at Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy, a national organization supporting advocates and mission-based organizations in their own pursuit of social justice. I'm also a faculty fellow at PLI, where I get to work on special projects like this podcast. So I broke my research into three questions. Why are kids leaving their home countries? Why are they in the U.S. unaccompanied? And what's the role of lawyers in responding to the arrival of these kids in the U.S.? First, why are kids leaving home? The vast majority of kids who are unaccompanied minors are from the Northern Triangle, the area of Central America that includes El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. Extreme violence, extreme corruption, extreme poverty, and extreme hurricanes are driving them away from their homes. And that part about the extreme violence, that violence really starts targeting kids when they reach teen years, when organized criminal gangs give families two choices— turn over your teenager to become a part of the gang, or the whole family will be killed. And when the bodies of other children turn up in the streets, families know the threat is real. 
extreme corruption means that governments are incapable of protecting people from this kind of violence. A 2017 survey in El Salvador asked people who runs the country. 47% answered the gangs. Look, if that was happening to my family, I'd do anything in my power to get them out. A dangerous, unpredictable trek to a new country may well seem safer than staying home. It's not the first time in history we've seen kids migrating to escape extreme circumstances. Think of teenagers fleeing the Irish potato famine, or young Jewish children being sent out of Nazi Germany to escape the Holocaust. Second question, why are so many kids unaccompanied? Shouldn't their parents be with them? Well, some kids are actually trying to get to a parent, a parent who is already here in the U.S., so they're traveling with other adults. But when they turn themselves into immigration and request asylum, border officials often remove children from the care of anyone who is not their parent. There are good reasons for this, to prevent children being trafficked or harmed by strangers. But there can also be real trauma where kids are taken from a caring adult who was, in fact, protecting them. And even with a child crosses with a parent, they might still be taken from that parent. It is a misdemeanor crime to cross the U.S. border without permission. So if the U.S. decides to arrest the adult for that misdemeanor, then their children will be taken away as a child protection measure. So then those kids are technically unaccompanied. And question three. What is the role of lawyers in responding to this migration of children? Well, all of these kids have a right to be heard in immigration court. And many of them have very strong claims for relief under U.S. law. They have suffered abuse, torture, or extreme persecution in their home country. And while their cases are pending, all of these kids have a right to stay in the U.S. And that system, get a fair hearing, present your legal claims, be safe while your case is pending, that system sounds good. But we have to ask ourselves, how does it really work when children are coming to these courts? Rachel Prandini, a staff attorney at the Immigrant Legal Resource Center, paints a picture. Again, there's no right to appointed counsel, and they can be ordered deported, you know, just like anyone else can. Regardless of a child's age, they're still put into immigration court proceedings. So I have been in court with two- and three-year-olds. I've been in court with um, a mom carrying a babe in arms, and that baby is also in removal proceedings in immigration court um, and is required to be there present at the first hearing. You know, we've had situations where kids are need to sit in booster seats to even be able to see the judge over the council table in the immigration court. And so we are also talking about very young children, and there's really no special provisions for young children. Um, they're treated exactly the same as adults. I honestly struggle to make sense of holding a court hearing with a kid in a booster seat who is pro se, or even with a teenager who is likely traumatized and unfamiliar with our culture and systems. I don't know how to reconcile that visual with the idea of due process. It has to be a struggle for everyone in the room. Judges have a duty to ensure fairness, and they can't become an advocate for either side. 
What are they supposed to do when faced with unrepresented kids in their immigration courtrooms? No one wants to preside over a show trial. I can see why some judges just keep continuing the matter and crossing their fingers, hoping the child comes with a lawyer next time. But at some point, that process has to move forward. And what does that court process look like? Well, if you listened to our last episode, you heard three lawyers at Foreman Watkins talk about how their pro bono asylum cases took years to resolve, how they relied heavily on an expert pro bono advisor, how they were pulling country reports and news articles, interviewing community members here in the U.S. and in the home countries. This is the same immigration system, same law, but kids represent themselves? Is it any wonder that unrepresented kids are 70 times more likely to lose? And this gets even harder to justify when kids actually have more legal protections than adults but they might have to go to state courts before they can assert those protections in immigration court. I asked Kristen Jackson, senior staff attorney at Public Counsel in Los Angeles, to quickly explain the protection known as Special Immigrant Juvenile Status, or SIJS. So it's a form of immigration relief for young people who have been abused, abandoned, or neglected by one or both of their parents, and in whose best interest it is to to remain in the United States. And it's a really unique form of immigration relief. And when I started doing this work, there weren't that many people who knew about it or who handled these cases. Um, but one of the unique parts about it is that it has a, a state court part of the case. So in order for a child to apply for special immigrant juvenile status, which is a path to permanent residency and ultimately a path to becoming a U.S. citizen, they first have to take this step in state court where they need to get these specific findings from a state court judge that allows them then to submit their application to the Immigration Service. It is incredible to have pro bono attorneys who have experience in state court in particular to handle special immigrant juvenile status cases. And so now if we have a pro bono attorney come in who has experience in probate guardianship proceedings and family law proceedings and dependency or youth justice delinquency proceedings, like that is um, a huge help. And honestly, that's a big part of an SIGS case. Abused, abandoned, neglected kids can apply for special immigrant status, but they have to go to a state's family or probate court first. What do you think the chances are that our three-year-old in a booster seat can get that done without a lawyer? Obviously, if these rights are to have any real meaning, these kids need lawyers. And it's not realistic to think they have money to hire them. So when we say they need lawyers, well, in our current system, that means we need an army of pro bono lawyers to help in these cases. Remember, there are an estimated 400,000 pending cases for unaccompanied minors. And whether you think these kids should be returned to the home countries or you think they should be allowed to grow up in the U.S., it is safe to say that no one benefits when the kids sit in limbo regularly attending a court where they have no idea what is really happening and judges have to preside over the cases and are put in impossible positions. So, if you've decided to get involved in pro bono for unaccompanied minors, you probably want to know what would I be doing and how do I do a good job working with these vulnerable kids? 
I know that the fear of doing it wrong, of making a situation worse, is a big barrier to taking on a new area of law. And that's exactly why PLI recruited Christian Jackson, Katie Anun, and Rachel Prandini to lead a day-long program on representing unaccompanied children. That program is available on demand from PLI. Their course covers detention and removal, court practice, the SIJS process, asylum interviews, and providing trauma-informed, culturally responsive representation. We asked Kristen, Katie, and Rachel to tell us some stories from their own practice in immigration law so we can better imagine ourselves taking on this kind of pro bono work and understand what doing the work feels like. One thing I was curious about is communication with the clients. If most of the unaccompanied minors are coming from the Northern Triangle, English probably isn't their first language. But when I'm working with clients, English is the only language I know. What is it like to handle that language difference well? Kristen Jackson got us started. Many of the children coming to the United States speak a range of languages. And obviously having pro bono attorneys who are fluent in Spanish, like for the particular population of children who come is incredibly valuable. But we also recognize that, in fact, many of the children who come to the United States, Spanish is not their first language. They speak a range of indigenous languages. Um, so really looking at, at representation, keeping in mind language justice, which I think you know has a variety of definitions, but really meaning the right that we all have to, uh, to communicate and to be understood in the language that is of our choice, the best language for us. And I think, you know, an example of language justice not having been at the forefront of a, in a case, I would say, was one in which an initial intake before the child came to us uh, had been done with an indigenous child whose best language was an indigenous language in Mexico. And the intake had been conducted in Spanish because there was just an assumption that this child from Mexico would be fluent in Spanish or that would be their best language. And so, um, you know, when the case came to us, we thought we had some idea of, of what kind of relief the child might qualify for. But when, in fact, there was an indigenous language interpreter that was brought in to interpret for the child, so many more details and so much more came out that actually allowed for successful representation. You know, it did, the whole case didn't go awry because it was course corrected at the beginning. But I think had there not been an awareness that proceeding in Spanish for the entire case was not the right approach, the child could have ended up in a very different situation ultimately. And so we do think it's really critical uh, for folks to to keep that in mind. Um, I'm often struck by the fact that in the language mom, there isn't an exact translation for lawyer. And so even just thinking around, again, is tying to language, but it also ties to culture. And so if you know, an interpreter is using, uh, whether between English and mom, which is a, an indigenous Mayan language spoken in Guatemala, uh, or Spanish to mom, that there, there might not be a one word exact interpretation. So how can you work together in that instance with an interpreter and knowing your client's background more to be able to really explain what your role is? So we're just starting off with those basic concepts of, of what we're working on together. Before this discussion, I think I definitely assumed that kids coming from the Northern Triangle were all Spanish speakers. And it certainly didn't occur to me that a kid might be most comfortable in a language that does not even have a word for lawyer. This small example of paying close attention to the client 
And staying aware of assumptions that can trip us up makes me wonder what else I would need to be thinking about to do a good job of working with these kids. It's a great segue from um, hearing more about language justice from Chris to talk also about cultural responsiveness, because they are, in my perspective, at least really tied together. Um, And to me, being culturally responsive is very much about examining your own background, whatever that might be, the pro bono attorneys, or example, my background as an attorney representing other people, and being able to also explore, examine, and learn about the background of the individual that you are working with and being aware of differences and upholding the dignity of the backgrounds, experiences, culture of the client and acknowledging that that's going to look different in many relationships. What I hear from folks sometimes is when they hear a story like that and they want to do well, they want to get it right, they want to be culturally responsive. But I think some people can feel paralyzed by that, that they don't trust their instincts and so they don't want to ask anything. And and I don't want anybody to not take one of these cases because they're like, you know what, if I'm talking to somebody from another place, I don't want to feel paralyzed, so I'm not going to do it. So what are your tips? Like, how did you get past that? That's a great question. I I definitely can see how that could raise like a, oh, okay, how do you interact? I think it's um, continuing to have consistent and reliable and thoughtful communication and learning. And if you make a mistake, it's okay. Uh, But being able to continue showing up and continue reaching out to the client and providing a space to talk about those things. Well, that's a good way of putting it. Oh, go ahead, Rachel. Yeah. I've made a lot of blenders that are... that. Afterwards, you know, I am questioning, why did I say that? Or why did I approach that in that way with clients over the years? And it's a learning process, of course, and we all make mistakes. Um, My experience has been that young people are so forgiving. I mean, I had a client who I worked with, and he had been brought to the United States as a baby by his parents. And so, you know, he grew up in California. And so we weren't dealing as much with cultural difference, though we had many other differences in our identities and experiences of the world. And in probably our, I don't know, fourth or fifth meeting, he said, so wait, so you don't work for immigration? And so, I mean, I was so embarrassed that I had not sufficiently explained my role or who I was that it took that many meetings before he understood that I wasn't part of the government you know, working against him. But we just had such a good laugh about the situation. And we talked, it, you know, it just opened up a whole conversation. And after that, I, I felt like it was a breakthrough moment. And I understood better how to communicate with him. And he understood better the whole immigration system that he had gotten drug into. Those moments can also be really meaningful moments for a client relationship as well, if you can approach it with humor and humility. Um, And so, yeah, I would hate for pro bono attorneys to feel like, oh, I don't, maybe I shouldn't do this because I might say the wrong thing. I think what I hear from all of you is the way that of, um, the way of framing it. So if you say something and the way it lands doesn't match what you intended, it's not, oh, it's the client's fault because they didn't pay enough attention the first four meetings. It's like framing it as like, oh, this is just... There's a disconnect. I can see something that didn't land the way I intended. So what can I learn from that? Like really framing everything as we're just always learning and moving forward. That's what I'm hearing from all of you come through.
What I like most about Katie, Kristen, and Rachel's approach to supporting pro bono is their recognition that attorneys want guidance on this nuanced relationship building, in addition to the technical aspects of litigating an immigration case. When your clients are children, separated from their families, fleeing severe violence, and stuck in limbo in a new country with a new culture, and usually a new language, the lawyer needs to be prepared to meet these kids where they are at. And what does that mean, to meet these kids where they are at? Katie had some thoughts. Being an advocate and representative for a young person who is viewed by the world differently, whether it's based on their race, their gender, sexual orientation, and in, in all of our clients' cases, their immigration status, the assumptions that I make about how I encounter the world are not always going to fit with the client that I'm working with. And so that is a learning process. And I think it's with every new person you encounter. It's, of course, not just in our interactions as attorneys, but I think it's really critical to being a competent and, and effective uh, attorney and to be able to acknowledge that you have different backgrounds and each of those backgrounds is is critical and important and um, valued rather than making assumptions that the way that you view the world is dominant or superior or the way it should go. Um, and so then being able to understand um, what was important to that person and their family and their experiences here in the U.S. as well, whether it comes to food or clothing or spirituality or views of the world and how language also constructs the world in different ways. Can you tell listeners a little bit like what does it mean to be trauma informed in your legal practice? To me, being trauma informed is very similar to the conversation we're having around meeting our clients where they are. You know, I think meeting again the client where they are is what are, what are their goals in this process. Um, but providing a sense of um, emotional and physical safety, if possible, that can be done through the way we interact and ask questions and the way physically we set up a, a, a meeting room. Um, for example, if you're um, in a room where there's big windows in a conference room and people are passing by and passing by all day, rushing between other meetings, and that's in the view of the young person, will they feel as, as comfortable talking about some of the things that they you're asking them about in that meeting? So thinking through how you are structuring a meeting in terms of what you're covering and how you're opening up harder conversations as well as transitioning out of them. When I was, I started my career as an associate at Reed Smith and was able to work on a really fascinating pro bono case that was also very challenging and emotionally um, difficult every time we met with the client. And somewhere along the line, pretty early on, we started to end the meeting talking about food, but then that turned into like just talking about tamales. And we talked about this every single meeting and we met on a weekly basis. And the shift in the meeting to be able to transition out of some very heavy, emotionally heavy content to talk about something that made this person very joyful, um, you know, was able, we were able to just shift the energy and create some lightness, you know, something that brought comfort to all of us. Um, so that that is one example of being able to transition out of a harder meeting is to have a plan in place before you even start, because it, what you're discussing will have an impact on the attorney or the advocate as well. Many of the young people that all of our organizations work with um, have experienced trauma, whether it is a particular incident. It's often though multiple compound trauma and are adjusting and acclimating to living in a new country and a new school. I think that um, one example there is 
if a young person maybe missed a meeting and you're feeling a little bit frustrated because you are really busy. I mean, this happens. I've had this happen countless times, you know, recognizing that maybe what you plan to talk about that day in the meeting might be very hard and might make maybe triggering for that young person. And so, yes, of course, you want to work, you need to work on their case and, and learn their story over time, but having some grace and understanding both for yourself, because it's okay to feel a little bit frustrated if your day gets changed up, but also compassion for your client who um, might really be uncomfortable discussing with you why more about their story if it involved trauma or other unpleasant events. And that if they did skip a meeting because they were ashamed or it was going to be hard to talk about and you as the lawyer get angry with them, it actually deepens the problem rather than remedying it, right? So often I think as lawyers, we're taught to like use our power to tell people you have to be here. But if somebody was already nervous and scared and you do that, it can actually make them more likely to skip future meetings or omit things because they're more nervous of you. Whereas if you can find the compassion that you described, Katie, that can begin to draw them out, right? Um, But it's a different way of using power than what we get taught as lawyers. Absolutely. Yeah. That just the, the, the attorney and client power dynamic that's so inherent. But if, as you mentioned, the adult and young person or child component, and that also can be um, tied into cultural responsiveness too. If the young person's in their community, um, you know, disagreeing with an adult or displeasing an adult was seen as something that what shouldn't be done or couldn't be done. Um, if they're displeasing, if they feel like they're displeasing their attorney, um, that can also lead to just, again, barriers in building trust or ongoing, um, I use the word avoidance, which can, I think, have negative connotations, but I think it's actually very truly like a coping mechanism for trauma. Kristen, you had a thought. I did. I just wanted to give uh, what Katie was describing, her example of the case she worked at while she was at Reed Smith. I had an, a, a case uh, that I thought I would share that actually was the thing that made clear to me that the approach that Katie took in that case is the right approach. And and the the case that I uh, had been working on was a young person and she had suffered like very serious, serious abuse in her um, country of origin. And I was preparing her for an asylum interview. And my inclination or my thought was like, she may be grilled at the interview, so she has to be ready. So we need to talk about this in excruciating detail and do a mock and and it, and it was all coming from a good place but we also had to get a psych evaluation done for her and when we did afterwards the evaluator called me and he let me know that after our sessions where we did this kind of intensive practice that our client was in really serious psychological distress after these meetings and that it had reverberations for her for like days. And when I learned that, it made perfect sense to me. It was like the scales fell over my eyes and I understood why that would be. And also that she didn't feel comfortable saying that to me because she knew that what we were doing was important for her legal case. So it took this outside professional And I am so grateful to this person um, because it has really changed how I approach all of my cases going forward. You know, I just wanted to add a couple of things about the training. One is, you know, I know that we talked a lot about language justice, cultural responsiveness, trauma-informed practice. And as you identified, that can feel overwhelming to people. And so we will have, as we mentioned, a full panel on it. And we will be offering elimination of bias credit for that panel, which um, I know is really helpful for attorneys. 
And in addition, the asylum panel that will be put on that day will be incorporating all of those practices. So not only will you have a chance to learn about those concepts directly, you will also see them incorporated into, you know, a real life example of preparing a client for an asylum interview at the asylum office. So I hope that that is helpful and encouraging to anyone who may be intrigued by this, but also feel like, gosh, that's a lot to take on and learn. You know, I think the program will really go a long way in helping people learn these concepts. You know, that's one thing I would encourage folks who are going to attend our training to, to see that obviously the training is focused on immigration and children. And the hope is that attorneys will take these cases and use these skills. But a lot of the things that that you learn by doing one of these cases really make you a better lawyer in your own practice that's maybe totally unrelated to immigration, unrelated to children. And I mean, I will go so far as to say, I think they make you a better human being <laughs> with other human beings outside of your, your legal practice. And I just think that it's a real privilege to be able to work on these cases because the amount that you can grow and push yourself, it's really incredibly valuable. So we're close to the end of our time. Does anybody have any final thoughts that you would want lawyers or paralegals or um, interpreters or anybody who might think about giving pro bono time to this kind of work? What Any last thoughts that you'd like them to, to hear? Kristen? I think one thing I'd, I'd like people to, to know, and it's something that I, it took me a while to, to learn, but how profoundly you can make a difference in an individual person's life. And obviously, you know that from, well, I got them, they're lawful permanent residents here, they got asylum. I'll just share a short story. I had this really interesting experience years ago, where out of the blue, I got an email from a, a, a faculty member at a community college who was reviewing scholarship applications. And she didn't know, it was a blind review, she didn't know the student, but they had to write about like some meaningful person in their life, something like that. And after reading the essay, this woman went online and looked me up to send me, to copy and paste for me the essay that this former client wrote. And as soon as I started reading, I knew exactly who it was, even though she didn't know. And it was just this really beautiful essay about how much she had been struggling and her immigration status was really so disruptive and she didn't see herself having a future. And then, you know, through our work together on her case, her whole vision of what was possible for her completely turned around. And and part of what I loved about getting this message was that like she didn't write it for me. You know, she didn't she wasn't telling me something I wanted to hear. And it was just this really amazing moment of insight. And I think for folks who are contemplating this work, it's kind of hard to understand what a massive impact you can have. And even if you never hear these words directly in this in that level of detail, um, I think you can really know and appreciate that it's incredibly powerful, the work that you can do together with a young person. Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our producer, Daniel Pinitz, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. 
For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit pli.edu slash pro bono.